And uh, I can remember every time I read that Green Eggs and Ham book, I was like, God damn, this book is long. Right. God damn it, Sam, leave that nigga alone. All right, yeah, go. damn, he don't want no Green Eggs and Ham. Damn, leave him the fuck alone. Fuck. You, you date rapist? No means no. Yeah, no means no. I don't want no, exactly, no means yeah. no. And there she is. And she's right side up. So when she first came <laughs> on, <laughs> when she first came on, Clark, she was up. First of all, when she first came on, you couldn't see her at all, right? And then when she came on, she was upside down. And then she turned it clockwise and she was at 90 degrees. And then she turned it again and she was at where she is now. So I just want to say welcome back to another episode of Single Dad why are you mad? And my name is David and I'm single dad to my one and only child. His name is Miles. He is three and a half. I had him. So again, you know, especially because we have a guest here, we need to be correct, right? <laughs> I did not have him. His mother had him. I was there in the room when she had him and she carried him. But, um, uh, he was born when I turned 50. All right, and I'm Clark. I'm a single dad to the three-woman threat. Uh, my daughters are ages 18, 13, and 11. I've been daddying since I was 25. So I've been spending you know, pretty much my entire adult life daddying. And it's funny because you always correct yourself by saying I had them aren't you because know, you didn't carry them. And I, and I make the joke with my ex-wife. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, I didn't carry them for those first nine months, but who carried them for the rest of that time? So uh, just to be clear, in case anybody hasn't heard it before, um, or if you're new, we define single dads as dads who, who are not in relationships with their co-parents, but still spend a significant amount of time or share custody with that child. So if I'm going to speak for myself, the custody agreement that we have right now, and this is what we were doing before we went to court, was that uh, my kid spends 15 days out of the month with me, and he says 15 days out of the month with his mom. Right now, he's with me on Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. He's with her on Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. And then we split Sundays in half. So she has to work on Sundays. She brings him to me at eight o'clock in the morning and she comes and gets him or I drop him off around eight o'clock at night. If she doesn't, then she brings him to me sometime in the evening and I keep him overnight. And in our case, we, we split custody. Um, I have him four nights a week in general. Uh, she has him three, but we have a lot of flex. Uh, we, we came up with our agreement prior to going to court. And the one time we went to court was to sign the divorce papers. So we, we try to do a very good job of keeping things between us. You know, it was a piece of advice we got from our mediator was to you know, keep the courts out of our business as much as possible. And um, if she has a work event or something going on where she needs to travel, then, you know, I comply and make sure that the girls are covered and vice versa. Um, you know, another reminder that, that we like to cover in every episode is we are not childbearing dating, relationship, financial, co-parenting, or baby mama experts. We are two guys who are sharing our experiences as we are learning. Yeah, I, I like to say we are changing the oil as we are flying the plane and wishing to God we had an instruction manual. So um, the last thing we want to say before we get to uh, business or before we get down to business, right, is uh, what is in a name? 
and what is it exactly we do here? You know, sometimes you may see, you know, the name single dad, why you mad? And you assume that, you know, you're going to join a bandwagon where there's two guys here, you know, um, bashing their co-parents. And that's not what we do here. And one of the main reasons we talk about this is because uh, there was a uh, comment on one of our postings that said, uh, watch out, the feminists are coming for you. And I had to respond to this person who's, you know, by saying this is not an anti-feminist movement, we would be worried if that's what it was, but it's not. Um, we do episodes um, on the single mom's perspective. We've done at least two of those. And we do other discussions on other things such as mental health. And um, one of the things that are probably important to me right now, which is probably a good way to go into it, which is uh, it takes a village to raise children. I don't know of, and so let me not say I don't know of, right? Let me speak for myself, right? Um, my uh, son's uh, aunt, so yeah, my son's mother's sister and her mother have played a significant role in raising my kid. When he was uh, three months old and he first went back to school, I'm sorry, and she first went back to work, I used to bring him down there every day in the morning, sometime around 8, 8.30, and I would pick him up around 5.30, 6 o'clock in the evening. There were many weekends if, you know, we wanted to go out or have date night or something like that, they would take him. There were just weekends that they would take him because they wanted to be with him. We have other friends, you know, uh, who have spent time. Um, he's got a friend down the hallway here that he's forever running down there knocking on the door and then I don't see him for an hour. It takes a village to raise children. And today we have an important guest who's going to educate us on how important it is uh, to be involved in the village. So the subject matter today is foster children and the challenges specifically um, related to those who are aging out of foster care. Um, this is our second installment in our Intakes of Village series. We're building upon the conversation we had with Guy Bryant. We're going to give uh, credit where credit is due because this person absolutely introduced us or made the connection for us with Guy. Yeah, and I would say if you have not listened to the Guy Bryant episode, stop what you're doing, rewind and come again, go back and listen to Guy Bryant. You know, phenomenal, phenomenal man who was responsible in the past handful of years for being a foster father to over 50 young men. You know, amazing story, amazing episode of our podcast. And, and I am proud to have met this guy and, and you know, to have had interaction with him. And I am so happy to have our guest on today who helped facilitate that introduction. So I'm gonna stop talking and I'm gonna allow you to introduce yourself and provide us with much detail about who you are, what you do, and what you bring to the table as you feel fit. Thank you both for having me on. Uh, my name is Anis Bailey. I am a social worker, change agent, a consultant, I'm a writer, and I myself as a, a parent of two boys, ages four and one year old. And a little bit about me, I was born and raised in Haiti, and I've been in the States um, for 19 years now after my parents divorced. Social work became my studies, and I moved to New York about in 2010 after the earthquake in Haiti. Child welfare chose me. I did not choose it, to be honest. I 
had applied to school in New York City and I was um, admitted to Columbia University. I started my studies there but had to take a leave of absence due to financials. And so I was just applying for any and every job that just required a bachelor's degree and that was in the nonprofit world. And after at least 30 plus applications, um, I was called for an interview at a residential treatment center in New York City, and I was hired that same day. And that RTC served youth 13 to 21 who are in foster care and who needed 24-hour supervision. And within just weeks, I knew that's where I was needed. And that's where the change needed to happen. So I stayed in that capacity for three years as a case planner. And I felt that something was off as to the system is too broken. Why are these young male in foster care in a setting such as this? I wanted to see who messed up and where. So I decided to go to preventive services after learning more about it. And I then transferred to another organization, still as a case planner, um, but on the preventive side. And preventive services is where a call is still made to the state central registry. ACS is still involved. However, the parent or caregiver is provided with an opportunity to adhere to whatever service plan or agreement rather than their child or children being removed. Okay, so hold up. You said a lot there, and, <laughs> sure. I, need, and I need to um, ask. You said something about a change agent. What exactly is a change agent? Did I catch that word wrong? No, you got it right. Um, so in social work, a lot of us refer to ourselves as change agent because that is what social work is about. It is about creating change in our communities, creating change, helping to foster change in those that we come in contact with and through our person supported. So whether it's at the micro individual level, whether it's at the organizational level, community organizations, or on a macro level at the you know, political aspect, that's a term a lot of social workers use in our field. That's amazing. That go ahead, Clark. I'm sorry. So you're a human catalyst, basically. You're 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 coming Absolutely. in and you're serving. That's that's kind of awesome. And and you're saying it's not just on the individual level. As a social worker, you're tasked with trying to you know, help initiate political change and and social change in your community. Absolutely. That's um, that's one of the things that attracted me to this field because you can take it at multiple levels. Some of us decide to stay in one because that's what we're passionate about, but our degrees and our passion allows us to look at change and creating that change at various levels. So um, I'm going to steal some of Clark's words and say there's a lot to unpack here, right? Because he says that all the time um, <laughs> and he's absolutely right. And sure. You know, I, I would feel remiss, right, if I did not jump back for one second and ask you, did you lived through the earthquake in Haiti? Oh, no. I, I moved here when I was much younger, but I was living in Florida at the time of the earthquake. But my family, including my mother-in-law, my father, I have a lot of family there. Um, so I was living in Florida, and then I moved here to New York after the earthquake. So I did not live there. Okay. 
because yeah. we was about to spend an hour on that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we were about to spend some time on that. Okay, all right. Um, and uh, you applied to Columbia, but you, you, you couldn't stay there for financial reasons. So mm -hmm. um, you then found yourself a job, right? So uh, Clark was about to ask you our founding question. Right. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> but, she, but she basically answered it already, right? She she, she asked her why, but I, I because I'm I'm sitting here taking notes going like okay, how this, how that. So our founding question, which which is the basis of our first episode and our first discussion, is how the fuck did I get here? Or how the fuck did you get here? Like with the the, the best of intentions and the best laid plans, how did you end up where you are? And you know, Generally, we talk about that from a, the standpoint of parenting as single parents. Um, we don't even know what your parenting situation is. So we, we can unpack that in a, in a second. <laughs> but also, you know, like I'm taking notes as I'm going, well, what, what happened with the military? Why didn't you go into the military? And, you know, how, how did you end up in, in New York versus wherever you were? Because, you know, granted, New York and Miami are the, are the two meccas for Haitian immigrants, Sahwase. Um. <laughs> oh man, you, you, let me tell you something. You guys always make me feel like an outsider, right? Whenever we no, no, no. Whenever we're here on the show, because I'm JB, right? I'm just black, right? So you guys got you, you know you got your culture, you got your music, you yelling sapase, you yelling all that other sort of stuff, and I can't say nothing. What am I supposed to say? Listen, man, like it, it's funny. So. And we're going off on a tangent, but I'll, I'll tell right, you one all thing. All right, we'll circle. No, no, we, you're right, you're right. We're going off a tangent. We'll yeah. circle back. So, Anais. Yes. How the fuck did you get here? Start from the beginning. <laughs> As a social worker, and coming to the United States, whatever yeah. your, 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 your parenting and relationship situation is, expound. Give, give us the details, Mom. Sure. Um, so... At a, as a kid, my parents divorced and my mom decided to move to Florida. It's as simple as that. I was a minor, didn't have a, much of a say-so. Um, I went to school in Florida, did my undergrad there. And at, while I was doing my undergrad, I reconnected with an old friend who is now my husband. Um, so we, I know, and 11 years later, here we are with two kids. Um, he is my best friend, my partner, my, my cheerleader, my biggest fan. And while I was in college, um, he lived in New York. He was just vacationing in Florida. And we went to the same school in Haiti together, actually. Um, and through mutual friends, we were connected more than a decade later. And I just had already scheduled a vacation to New York because I have family here as well. And from one day to 11 years, we're going to be celebrating our 10-year marriage anniversary this December, actually. See, it does work, Clark. People it does work. <laughs> people, it's just you and me that can't get it right. But there are people actually Sorry. out there that are getting it right. And then, and people like, oh, so, and I don't want to get too far off the subject because we want to circle back, right? But there are people always saying, no, it's the younger generation, it's the younger generation, it's this new X-Gen, or what do they call it, X-Gen, what, what, what is it? Uh, millennials. Yeah, it's the millennials, it's the millennials that can't get it done. 
You're a millennial, Anais? I will not disclose. I do not. Okay. All right, all right, that's fine. All right, all right, okay, that's fine. All right, that's fine. So, so you you told us about how you got here, right? And right. And, and we got that. So, what is your job now? What do you do now? Um, as of today, I am a social work consultant. I started my own practice um, after many years of frustrations, to be quite honest, um, in the field. My last job, I served as one of the directors in a foster care program in New York City. And I also am a writer. Okay. So um, I want to back up a little bit. Your first thing was uh, ages 13 to 21. You were at a, um, what did you call it? RTC, a residential treatment center. And a residential treatment center. So that's not a foster home, correct? It Think of it, a foster home is the lowest level of care that is the most home-like setting for someone in foster care. Then the next level up is a group home where you have, you know, about a dozen kids or, or youth. And then the next level is a RTC, which is a residential treatment center. It means school is on site, medical is on site. It's just... They do everything. Everything is there. And then the highest level of care is a residential treatment facility. And that's usually for um, medically fragile and or, you know, like they say, upstate. um, That's something else. But so what -hmm. what they generally refer to as like someone being institutionalized would be that that would be the RTF, the RTC. Um, I don't think that many people use that they're institutionalized. They're just saying it's RT. There are not many RTCs left in New York City. There are a few, but um, because there are a lot of opinions out there within the field that they're not necessarily working. Um, and so there's two school of thought for that. So what do they do at RTCs? that they don't do at the group home? Um, so those Okay, okay I'm sorry. So I'm, I'm sorry. Let me ask the question differently because you sure. said what they do. Why do they do those at RTCs? Why would you go to an RTC as a young adult versus going to a group home? The argument is about um, behavior or what that young person may quote-unquote need. Um, so if... Once a child is removed from their caregiver, their parents, the the initial place is to always try to seek a family member, a, a kin, right? But not all the time it happens or it happens and then it, it doesn't work out. Then the next level is a foster home. <clears throat> but if ACS and whoever that planning agency you know, discloses that this youth, this young person has A, B, C, D that regarding their behavior and they're not functioning appropriately at the community level. So they're running away, they're not going to school, they're getting into fights, they're they're threatened, they're um, suicidal or they're homicidal. All those behaviors or quote unquote check marks can lead a young person to be referred to a residential. Now the group home, again, I never worked at a group home. I know it's very limited and I know that Guy had talked about that as well, that there's not many around at this time, but some young people stay at the group home while waiting placement to an RTC. 
because again, it's all about referrals and the, that program has to accept them again, based on their, whatever the behavior that led to foster care, the reason that led to foster care, what, what the service plan is and what that young person is willing to, to change. So, so what I just heard is that they'll go from group homes. If you're in a group home, the goal is to get to an RTC. Is it yeah. not? Well, so, okay. It's the reverse. The goal is to get you back yes. to family. Exactly. RTC, RTC, is, RTC and RTF is, pardon me for saying, when shit hit the fan. Like when this kid is exhibiting like rougher behaviors, you know, exactly. they're, they're starting to run away. They're not, you know, they're not responding to the coaching and training and, and help that they're getting. They're not, you know, connecting with the family member that you tried to place them with. So it's like, so it goes from being keep you in your house with your care, your primary caregiver, being your parents, your legal guardians, what have you. If that goes wrong, move you to being with a, a relative or some next of kin so that you have that familiarity. Mm -hmm. If that goes awry, then it's okay. Maybe we have to consider a group home. And group homes, you're in, you're in this place where you have, additional help and additional structure but you can still continue going to a local school and while you're living there and getting the treatments and then when shit really gets bad and kid is really wilding out then it's the uh the rtc initially right right and and then if all things fail then it's the rtf well, the RTF, yeah, is usually for medically fragile or um, some type of uh, mental health concerns there, but it usually stops at the RT, RTC. It's very hard to get an RTF placement. Yeah. At least from my experience. Everything I'm seeing is just from my experience. No, of course, of course. Yeah, and, and you've been working in the industry for how long? I'm sorry. I, almost 10 years here in New York. But that, that, so that's, that's, well, that's, I live in Jersey, but when I was, yeah, I worked in New York. So, I mean, that's, a, that's still a fairly significant body of experience. I'm sure you, you have tons of stories over that 10-year period. Yes, we, are ne- we never run out of stories. And every time we think you've heard it all, um, somehow, some way, there's something else. There's a new story that you just couldn't even fathom. Um, so I, I want, yeah, go ahead. So, so you, you, you're working at an RTC, right? There's 13 year olds to 20, what did you say? 13? 13 to a little over 21. Um, 13 to 21 year olds. Um, these are, um, these are all male. I mean, you, you, this was at a male home, not at a female home. No, there were no females on site. Okay. But there are female homes also, obviously, correct? There are, yes, there are all female RTCs or group homes, and there are some that are co-heads too. Okay. And these kids that come in, right? Mm -hmm. What would you say um, um, the average age that they come in at? Uh, When I first started at the RTC, because it had a, it was a large program when I first started, there were youth as young as 12 and a half to 13. I mainly had the caseload of the middle group, which was the 14 to 17 year old, um, as one of the three social workers who were there. So, but there was a, a lot of the 
of that age group, the 15, 16, 17. And then there was a little break around the 17, 18, but then it jumped at the 2021 20, who's been in foster care forever and a day, trying to obtain housing and transition out. And there was another um, specialist working with those older youth to ensure that they obtain housing and college or jobs. So I was mainly um, working with the middle age. And in the middle age, what is the biggest challenges you saw in working with those kids? Um, first, I want to say that those youth made me fall in love with foster care and child welfare. They are some of the most inspiring and amazing people I have ever met. Um, and But the challenge was, from my perspective... Your face, your face just lit up the way Guy's <laughs> face lights up when he talks about these kids. Go ahead. Um, so my, my challenge was mainly at the organizational level. Um, I, I think the system is trying. I, I don't want to knock down all the good initiatives that are happening, um, but my day-to-day -day on the job was just the littlest things, just having the resources as a social worker for these youth. Uh, give, us, give me an example, give me an example. Something as simple as making sure you have a phone that works or internet um, that you that the core is not sending you, giving you. So one of my frustration was I had to go to court with these youth at the RTC and I would go to court in the Bronx, wait three hours and only for the case to be dismissed for another three months. And so this young person is now lingering in foster care for an additional three months just because an attorney didn't show up or someone wasn't notified appropriately. And it's just, and that young person's there, hope you could see that everything changes. So you're, saying, so you're saying they're at the court, they're with you, you know, they got their shirt and their tie on or whatever else it is. The goal is for them to go somewhere, be it they go back to their family or something like or that. Or an update, right. A significant update. A significant yeah. update, only to find out that some sure. um, that notice wasn't sent to a parent, a relative, um, or, or another, an attorney. Or an attorney or whatever else it is, and somebody doesn't show, and then it just gets postponed for another three months, and, you know, whatever. And, 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 you know, to adults, so that shit is frustrating to me, right? Um, when I go to court, right? That, uh, right. you know, I'm sitting there, you know, uh, for two hours while, you know, something else is going on only to go in there for 15 minutes and turn around and come out and have to come back again later. Imagine right. a, a 13, 14 or 15 year old who puts all their hopes and dreams in this thing. Right. Yeah. And, and the, the wild thing is like, no matter how, screwed up they are or what problems they have or, I mean and it may not even be that they have significant problems but from that from that perspective your mom and dad is still your mom and dad you know and there's always that intrinsic desire to be with your parents and to have that hope dangled in front of you as a 13 14 15 16 you know hell I got an 18 year old daughter and she enjoys hanging out with me most of the time you know to have that dangled in front of you, sitting there waiting for a significant update, and then somebody just goes, 
mm, yeah, no, nah, son, we don't got nothing for you today. Go home. Oh, wait, you can't go home. Go back to these people. Come yeah. back in, in three months. I, 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 like, yeah, go ahead. No, I'm just saying, like, it, it, that's that's maddening. As you're saying this, I'm sitting there going, like, my, my, my chest is clenching and hurting for these kids. Yeah, and the car ride, um, you know, as a, as a social worker, you just had to get your bag of tricks because then you had to find a way to uplift this young person again on, you know, the ride back. And, and that's just, and oftentimes that's already your entire day is shot. And that's just one youth, not counting the other 16, 17 on your caseload that are going through their own thing that particular day. God forbid one of them had a breakdown or was looking for you or there was an email that was sent that is significant, but you were just stuck a two and a half hour commute just to one court, waited 15 minutes, like you said, David, is postponed in another two and a half hour, imagine traffic in New York City, and then your day shot. So you did not even have the chance to make any other work for the other. Nothing productive ever. happened that day is what you're saying. I a, mean, a non-productive day. So I try to celebrate the small victories. It's okay. one of my favorite words, right? That I could sit there and be frustrated, um, which often I was, and that energy carries on to this young person sitting um, in the car while we're having lunch. Or I could just use every minute to get to know them a little bit more, get to know their aspirations, their dreams, their hopes, what makes them take so that way we can develop that report and just make it work that way because the next day I probably going to spend another four hours with another youth who has to go to court. All right. And so, that's so the thing I didn't like about the RTC. Yeah. So you said that these youth are some of the most inspiring, uplifting um, people that you'll ever meet. Tell me what you mean by that. So, because, and, and, and let me, and, and let me, and let me preempt this by saying the perception I believe sometimes is, is that these are bad kids and their parents didn't know what to do with them or they ran away or whatever else it is. And that's why they're here, that they're bad kids. That's the perception. Right. And that's wrong, unfortunately. Um, so I went to a training one day and it said that if a child or a youth ends up in foster care, it means every single other support system has failed them. And the trainer proceeded to say that the child welfare system, foster care especially, think of it as a safety net with a lot of holes. It's like a fishnet. It's a safety net, quote unquote, it'll catch some, but there's still holes in there and not all will be safe and not all will be peachy. And that always stuck with me that this is the last resort. Once a kid is on our roster or in our, you know, in our intake or whatever it is on our caseload, this is it. Their caregiver, it didn't work out, their next of kin, they probably have had a dozen caseworkers and you're, you're another person that they have to open up to. And a lot of them, most of them, they do try. And to me, that's resiliency because they don't have to. No one owes us their stories, especially someone who's been abused, someone who's been neglected. They don't owe us anything. 
And so when a young person or anybody who's been to trauma share their stories, we have to respect that. And that's why I say they're some of the most inspiring because once they do open up, they're just like you and me. They have hopes, they have fears, they have dreams, they laugh, they make mistakes, just like Guy had said in, in his um, interview with you. And we have to allow people to, to blossom and bloom where they're planted. Did you like guy choose to work with youth in this age range versus working with children in foster care of a younger age range like newborns to like five years old did you choose this or it chose you and you decided to stay here did you ever have an option to go work with kids that were a lot younger absolutely i mean as a social worker we have that option to choose you know, where, which population we want to work with. But I always knew I wanted to work with teens. I just didn't know what capacity. And like I shared um, when I was um, first started talking to you all, child welfare chose me, foster care chose me. It was just the first person for the first job that, you know, said, hey, you're hired on the spot. We need someone ASAP. And I, like I said, it did not take a more than a month for me to say this is where I'm needed. And it, it's an interesting age group, the, the youth and older, um, older you transitioning out. And for me, I while I do have the option to work with younger people, I don't want to, mainly because I would prefer an angry teenager any day versus a two-year-old who can't really tell me who, what's going on and I have to do the guessing game. I think that's harder, actually, than a, a teen, you know, punching the walls and cursing me out. There's some level of communication that can be had there with the, with the teenager. Right. For me, that's what it's about. It's about the connection. I, so dive, going back a little bit, mm -hmm. so you, you know, you said so, social work chose you. What was your major in undergrad? Social you work. I chose the major based on the classes that made sense in my head. So a lot about um, interactions with other people, with children, youth, and families. And it just so happened my advisor at the time was busy, so I had to just be on the waiting list of whoever was willing to take me. And the person was willing to take me happened to be a social worker she was starting a social work class at the university and she became my mentor colleague she was the reason I went to Columbia and we actually just wrote a grant together that was approved and now we're working together I want to jump into that the idea of that grant and the work you're doing now so is this this grant that you guys wrote together and and received funding for is this part of your consulting work Right. So it's one of it. So like I said, I went to work as a preventive service case planner. I then was able to go back to finish my master's in social work. And I went back to foster care because New York City had started something called Child Success NYC. And it's the only reason why I returned to foster care from preventive. After a year in preventive services, I realized preventive is doing a great job. They, they, it seems like they have a good plan going. But foster care in my head was still falling apart as a system. And this initiative, Child Success, was the idea that all case planners have been screaming about, which is lower the caseload, give me better training and better pay, and maybe I could do my job better and there could be better outcomes. And so the Child Success model was to have no more than 10 active cases and two suspended pay for a case planner. And what that means is 
10, 10 of those children or youth would be in a foster home and two of them could be either in college or on, you know, returning, reunifying with their families. So it's essentially no more than 12 kids on your caseload or youth. And versus, from, versus the six. Versus 19, 20, 22. The most I've had at the RTC was 22 kids at a time. And trust me, 12 versus 22, it's a it's lot a of difference. A world of difference. The amount so, of time and, the, you know, to do your so, job. So, so that's why I went back. So it requires them, so it requires whoever it is to hire more staff. Exactly, because they receive the organizations then receive the funding to hire the staff to then lower the caseload. And so I, within the same organization, I was promoted as a supervisor um, as part of this initiative. It was exciting, but it was also just like implementation work is messy, right? It takes time. I then um, was promoted as a director who supervised the supervisors. And then I was then the clinical director for that organization. And I oversaw the youth services, family unification, adoption, and other initiatives that were happening. And after doing that for a few years, I just to your title of why I'm mad, um, I saw that change is, you know, some changes were happening, but it was still not at the level that I wanted it to. And having to commute five hours in a day just to get to work to a frustrating, to a system that is frustrating. Um, I decided to start my own practice where my role is to help nonprofits and other programs implement their initiative and to have better outcomes. So that's what I'm doing now, if that makes sense. Okay. So let's, 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 um, let's, let's get to some of the, 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 the issues. Sure. How many kids are being adopted after, let's just say, 13? How often, from a percentage uh, rate, are kids adopted after 13? Um, I may have seen it in the past nine years, maybe three or four times. Three or and four? So, so in the past nine years, have you seen 1,000 kids in your, in, in your work? I don't want to say 1,000. Uh, I'd say close to a couple of hundred. Two or 300? Yeah, a little. Yeah, def around that time. Yep. And of that two or 300, you've seen three absolutely adopted? After age 13, it's just, I have not seen it. If it's happened, it, it happened, so you know, not. you're being generous when you say two or three. <laughs> you say three or four. You're being generous. I just cannot think of one. I, I know the little people get adopted. I call I call my, my kids little people too. Um, it's yeah. usually the babies um, and under 10, you know, um, after 10, the, you know, it just gets harder and harder. And if a 13 or 14 year old is, is adopted, it's, it's rare and it's usually because it's a kinship and the child has been there for a while. But yeah, I so just, that was, that was going to be my next question. So when that adoption does happen, you're saying that it's usually by a kin? Usually. I don't see many people who are non-kinship adopting teenagers. And not because they don't try. I want to also say that. Uh, what I've seen is um, part of my why, why I was mad. And um, I see a lot of young people saying no to adoption as well. And Oh, boy. Yeah, what? I, so they're holding out for their families. 
I see it for two reasons. The main one is I want to go back to my mom or my dad or whoever that person who raised them in spite of that person having been the person who did the neglect or the abuse. They want to go back to that person. That's who they're connected with. And the second reason is systemic. I, I, tr I truly feel that way. Um, once a youth comes in foster care, if depending on what staff they have or what the organizational culture is, a lot of times it's, well, you want to stay in care because there are benefits. And it's one of the things that are my pet peeves. There are no benefits to being in foster care. There are options, like Guy stated, that are presented and a young person can, you know, utilize those options and resources. But it's at the cost of having been abused and staying somewhere where you're not wanted, I don't see that as a benefit. So because they're being told, oh, you'll get your own apartment, you'll get free college education, you should stay, and you're saying that to a 14-year-old, that means he, that 14-year-old has to stay in foster care till 22, 23, I don't see that as a benefit. And, and so, so the staff is positioning it to a 14-year-old, like, hey, you don't want to get adopted. You want to stay here. I think it's the court and the court, um, the child's attorney, the youth attorney. I'm saying child, and then the ch the staff not having the adequate training because language matters, words oh, matter. Yeah, absolutely. Right. So it's about how you frame things. So again, if you're saying benefits versus here are some options, you know, it's what clicks with a young person, and so. But what I see oftentimes is a 15-year-old goes to court and says, I don't want to be adopted, and their attorney, which is their job, says, okay, no problem. Let's make sure that you have the goal of independent living. And that's a 15-year-old. Right. That 15-year-old that cannot apply for housing until they're 18 anyway. Why would you want to prolong foster care just for, you know, NYCHA apartment, which our young people can do even better than that. They could be adopted into a forever family. Yeah, so it, 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 it goes back to like having these conversations, like as a dad and having these conversations with my kids. And I go like, you know, you're a smart person. You're an incredibly intelligent person at 11, 13, 18 years old. But you don't see the whole chessboard. And you're making decisions with very limited scope. Like right. it, it, it's part of growing up, you know, and, and to like put these decisions in the hands of a kid who goes, okay, yeah, you know, I can have free college and I can have my own apartment. When, yeah, when I'm, when, I'm, when I'm 18 versus I can have love, support, and opportunities from a family that has resources to take care of it. You said a forever family. What is that? A family who's not going to kick you out once those checks stop coming in. That's my definition for youth in foster care. Um, because in my role, in my last role within an agency, I was getting the phone calls where, um, hi, my name is so-and-so. I, you know, I was adopted as, as a 10-year-old through your agency, but I'm 22 now. And at 21, my adopted family kicked me out and now has another kid. I'm sorry. You know? What the fuck are you talking about, please? <laughs> I was getting those calls um, because the, the, the checks stopped coming. Once the youth is 21, the federal monies no longer pay 
that adopted family, right? What do you mean by that? I have no yeah. idea what you mean by that. Yo, so, 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 so let me back up for, no, 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 stop, stop, wait, 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 no, 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 no. No, go ahead, go ahead, because like, I, I can't even talk, like, my, my heart just sunk. So one of the reasons this is important to me, this issue is important to me, right, is that I was adopted at the age of 10 and wow. lived with my family. Um, and I, that's my family. I don't know anybody else. That's awesome. And I'm happy that you experienced that. And I don't know anything about any checks or anything like that. What are you telling me? What are you telling me? Are you telling me? Listen, at 30-something, how old was I when I moved out? I was moved out at 24 years old, and my mother was, like, heartbroken. Where are you going? I was going to live with my girlfriend. What are you telling me, that checks come for adopted kids up until they're 20-something years old? That wasn't going on in the 60s, was it? I cannot tell you. I was not a social worker in the 60s in New York City. (laughs) I know that there are federal monies for if you're adopting a a child in foster. So if you adopt a child at two years old, you are guaranteed payment till they're 21. But I, what I was saying as to one of the reasons why I was, you know, so frustrated oftentimes is they did not come often, but every couple of months you would get that one phone call where the young person introduced themselves, they're now 24 years old or, you know, they just turned 22 and it's a broken adoption because it's 20, they're 21. There's no more checks. And that family who was supposed to be forever just said, okay, thank you. Just farewell. Get, get the heck out of my house. And now that foster, that adopted parent now goes back to an agency and says, oh, my home is open. I want to um, accept more kids. Right. And the cycle continues. It's and a that, fucking, it's a business is what you're telling hustle. me. It's a hustle? Of course. Of course. You don't get the Guy Bryant's all the time. And that's what his push is for. And that's what our push is. It's just we need we need people who want to be foster parents for the right reasons, not because this is an additional funding source for their bills, right? And as much as agencies do their best to vet these um, foster parents, at at the end of the day, you just don't have enough to choose from. And so the quality is a hit or miss. And again, that's my experience. There are some amazing, I've met some amazing foster parents who say, if I could just replicate you and just clone you a hundred times, we would have better outcomes. And I've met some where the homes had to be closed immediately. You know, I had a one story that sticks with me is um, a young person who I'm still connected with, uh, young male. He um he came to the office one day just to fill out a his FAFSA application, something very simple, and he would just not talk, and but he couldn't concentrate that day. Two hours later in the office, he discloses that um, he had. Um, marks on his knuckles and he lied in the beginning saying oh you know he was upset and he doesn't he fell off his skateboard but two and a half to about two and a half hours later he disclosed that he and his, his foster parent had gotten an argument so I'm thinking did, did you get in a fight with this woman he said no but I recorded what happened and this young person recorded this foster parent being verbally verbally aggressive and abusive to him she was drunk. She was cursing him out. 
And all he did was punch a wall and he was just, he said, I did not want, it just been going on for a while. I didn't want to say anything because I've been through worse. And so, 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 so I'm sorry. Um, Cause I'm still stuck on this and you done <laughs> fucked me. You, you fucked me up with this shit. You take in a foster child, right? Child in care. I wanted to change, um, child in care, not child, foster child. That, okay. Child or in youth care. in care. You That's think a better language. You should feel free to correct us every chance you get, all right? Because okay. I want to learn. You're here to teach us, right? Okay. So you, you have a youth in care. The state or the federal government is sending you X dollars per month, year, whatever else it is. Per month. Per month, right? You still have to dress and feed. Isn't that what that money's for, to dress and feed that child? It's not like you get money to dress and feed that child, plus then they say, okay, and then this part is for you. They're sending you a check to dress and feed that child, no? Right. It's to care for the child. So if it's money to care for the child, my kid costs me sixteen, eighteen hundred dollars $1,800 a month just to get out the bed. But it also depends on the age of the child, right? Because the diapers and the, the daycare costs go away after the kid's a certain age. Yeah, but that's not, they're not sending the same money, but they're not sending the same money for a, 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 a zero to five-year-old that they're sending for a teenager. Am I right? Let's add, I mean, I'm asking you, Anais, I'm asking you. Yeah, it's not, it's the rates vary based on the child's age. And then the foster parent gets paid per night that the youth, child or youth is in their home. And then they may have more than one kid that they're fostering at the time. But Absolutely. they all, but they all need clothes and they all need food. Yeah, but and you, and you got if you got a three bedroom apartment, there's rent for that. Yeah, but I'm, but you know, well, no, job. the board that that should not be for rent because that's why you should have your own source of income when you're becoming a foster parent because it's not to supplement your your bills. You know? It's not to supplement your bills, but it sounds like a lot of these people that's how they're using it. So if, like, you, oh. so if you have a three-family house, you should have been able to afford that three-family house before you got these four, these child, these youth in care. Correct. So, so the fear is, and, and it sounds like, you know, you have these situations where, okay, these people are like, yeah, I got a house, I got a little extra room, um, I'm going to take this kid in, and, you know, it's a come up for me, basically. I'm going to have this kid here, and yeah, you know, we'll, we'll get him some clothes, and, and We'll feed him some food. I'm already buying groceries, you know, whatever. I just cook a little extra more, a little extra. And, oh, now you're 21, 22. I ain't getting this check for you no more. Be out. And like start that, over. That, that, and get another two or three, you know, child or youth and start over. Yo, man, they, they, like, there is a certain circle in hell for people like that. But, like... So, go ahead, Clark. I'm sorry. Because I'm just thinking, like, like... Like I'm thinking of like as as we're talk as we've talked about and as we as we're talking about tonight like the idea of people fostering a kid and bringing a kid in. Like I have one really good friend, and he and his wife, you know, well they're they're like family, you know, but they they have fostered, to my knowledge, at least four kids, and ended up adopting two of them, you know, awesome. and. And and like rock with these kids, 
you know, because they're 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 two the two sons they adopted are both eighteen now, and they're helping them along the path, putting them through college. Like these are their sons, you know, and they had three kids of their own before they started doing the fostering thing. You know, like I can't even imagine one of them turning around going, "Yeah, yeah you know, the check stopped coming, so fuck these little dudes." Why wouldn't they just leave them as foster children versus adoption, right? When I think adoption, I'm thinking that you have made up your mind. If I go and, uh, if, sorry, I said foster child, child in care. Why do a child in care versus, why not just do a child in care versus adoption? If I do adoption, I'm saying to myself that, you know, I want you to be my child, take my name, everything. Why not just stay with child in care versus go to adoption? It's simple because the moment, if you're still in foster care, you have a case planner, a supervisor, you have some, you have a revolving door of people coming to your house, telling you what to do, checking every nooks and crannies if they're doing their, you know, a thorough assessment of the home, asking you questions, what you did, when did you do it for each child? You have to go to court every couple of months. You have a lot of to-dos. Whereas once the adoption is finalized, nobody comes to your house. There's no judge, no attorney, no caseworker, planner, no agency to be in your business, for lack of a better word. So if you are in this for the wrong reasons, it makes sense. But if you are in this for the right reason, which is to give a child or a youth an opportunity to know what family and what love looks like, then you want that support. You want somebody to say, hey, here's where you can go. Here's what you can do. But so, and if you just go through the adoption, everybody else disappears that moment at once it's finalized at court. Is the money the same for foster from, for, from child in care to adoption? Um, it depends on what rate the child was adopted at. So there is regular rate, special rate, and exceptional rate. And it base, it's based on the child's diagnosis and or if they have a medical condition. Basic rate, is that the same as if you go from child in care to adoption? Yes. It, it doesn't... Change. So it's it's just, same money. Have people. Okay, it's okay. I got you. I got it. I got it. I got, okay, you're saying right. that if you're at basic rate when you're in child and care, you go to basic rate in uh, adoption. If you're at when uh, the adoption papers are filed, it's whatever rate that. So that's why some foster parents try to make sure the child gets a diagnosis. So another reason why I get mad because children in care are overly diagnosed, knows, right? right? And it's because there are dollars attached to that. So, oh, so, so you could just have a kid who's like, oh, you know, like he's missing his parents, so he's acting out a little bit. But oh no, now we give him ADHD and maybe some meds, and that's a bigger payday for somebody. You got it. Simple as that. You know, and, and, and that, so here's the other question: But but to go did. from child and care to adoption. Do these parents have to pay adoption fees? Like, say somebody who's looking to pay, like, oh, no. so is it, there, there's no adoption. Fee. So, but the other risk with that thing, Clark, that you just talked about is that you don't want to underdiagnose somebody and then you don't have the care also. 
Oh no, absolutely, man. Like I, I I'm a firm believer in so Aeneas is know, a therapy and so forth. But yeah, so but Aeneas is when I said that she is not shaking her head, she's not nodding her head, she's just staring at us. She's just but staring at me. Like, like yeah, right. Yeah, right. Is the way you, she's looking I, right there. I no. hear you, but all I'm saying is most children are you diagnosed with ADHD or other whatever that they're or just kids. Of. Well, no, it's trauma. Um, we talk where we talk about trauma informed care every other month in this in this system, but there's a difference between trauma informed care versus trauma responsive care. You could be informed all you want, but if you don't do anything about it, you're just back to square one. Yeah. So you said you said something earlier that was like really interesting about the idea of why kids who presented the option of adoption, turn it down. And that, that first reason being, you know, holding out the hope for that, that family of origin. And it, it, I went to an event earlier today and it was like a domestic violence awareness event, you know, with this being domestic violence, October being domestic violence awareness month. And one of the things they said is, you know, changing the way they approach people who are in a domestic violence situation because when polled and surveyed, most people didn't want to leave their relationships. They just wanted the abuse to stop. Right. And it's the same thing with, with, you know, it sounds like it's the same thing with these kids. It's like, I don't necessarily want to give up on my mom and dad or, you know, my guardian or, you know, my caregiver. I just want the bullshit to stop. Right. And they're holding out hope so that, you know, they learn these skills and, and get the treatment to stop the bullshit and so that they can return to that, that house of origin. Is, is that what you're seeing with them or what you've seen with the kids too? A lot of them, right. I mean, if you, if your caregiver is the first person you bonded with, whether it was positive or negative, a lot of them do want to go back to their, their parents. Um, and oftentimes when a, when a child goes missing or a youth goes missing or run away from their foster parent or from RTC or wherever they're at, a lot of times they return to that caregiver. A lot of times. When you and say that caregiver, you mean who? Their, whoever they were removed from. Whoever they were removed from. Let me ask right. you something. Um, once they adopt, when, 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 when you're a child in care, um, mm -hmm. at my home, I can't write you off on my taxes, but once I adopt, I can write you off on my taxes also. Correct. So that's, so that's an additional benefit. And uh, you know, believe it or not, some parents, some foster parents still, even though the child is in care, they still add them to their taxes. We tell them not to, cause you will get caught eventually, but it happens for whatever reason. So, um, people with you, <laughs> so, so you say that, um, these kids are holding out because they're told that they're going to get um, college paid for. How true is that? This is what I tell my youth. I tell them whether you stay in foster care another six months or you, you, you know, reach permanency, which is the term used, you know, you are adopted or you return back home. When you're filling out the FAFSA, even if it's 10 years from now, there's a question that says, have you ever been in foster care? The moment you click yes, you will get financial aid anyway. You do not need to be currently in foster care to have college paid for. So I tell them that's a misunderstanding. 
that you can have a forever family or you can return home if that's the you know the the option for you and still get financial aid so if you were ever in foster care you right. can get financial aid meaning not a loan but a grant you get finance yes you get financial aid like most people would get if they don't have the so I didn't get financial aid, so FYI, because um, I didn't, I was an immigrant, I didn't qualify for it under that at the time that I went to school. But, and the, one of the question, we have a lot of youth come back who had left foster care many years, and they just want a letter of proof that's saying, hey, I was in foster care for X amount of days with this agency. They attach that to their FAFSA, and they get financial aid to go to school, any school in the U.S. When I, so I'm so currently in foster care. I'm ask I'm asking you this for a reason, right? Because like okay. I told you, I was in foster care <laughs> from the age of two to the age of ten, and God damn it, I got sixty thousand dollars in student loans. Are you telling me that I could have okay. checked the box? Now I went to school in the fucking eighties, right? I went to college in the fucking. The, the I don't what? know what to tell you. You should have clicked yes, and you should have gotten proof. I ain't seen no goddamn question mark or no <laughs> goddamn box that said I could click a box if you was in false. Okay, nobody asked me no goddamn See, you, question. You, you need to figure out if that's retroactive, done. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a loan advisor. I, I just know that's a question that it has been there for as long as I've been in this field. And once you show proof that you know you would get financial aid. Okay. All right. So, um, moving on, right? Um, yes. So, you said that they, they that the college is there. Let's talk about the housing. Um, okay. They the youth transitioning out of foster care automatically get NYCHA housing. No, it's not an automatic. There needs to be an application process and. The first thing that needs to be um, done is their goal. Their permanency goal has to be changed to the court. So the first goal is return to parent. Second goal is the kinship, right? You have, it didn't work out with your parent. So then there's going to be a kin, uh, a kin person that you'll live with permanently and no longer be in foster care. Another goal is adoption. And then the other goal is APLA, which is the term used, and it stands for another plan, another permanent plan living arrangement. And that's when we, AKA independent living. And so once the goal is changed through court, it is now the planning agency's responsibility to ensure that that young person's housing applications are completed and that they're receiving, you know, on that track to make sure that once they obtain housing, they transition they transition out of foster care successfully. But it's not just an automatic stay in foster care, it will magically happen. And on the young person's part, they have to do certain things too. They have to adhere to whatever their service plan is and whatever the guidelines are, including being in a vocational program or looking for work or going to school and being in a foster home until such time, <clears throat> excuse me, that their housing application is approved or and it's that they are um, housing is located for them. 
So I remember having a conversation with you really quickly via text <laughs> message um, right. where, you know, you said that there are definite challenges with NYCHA and, and, and a guy might have mentioned it also, that there, there okay. are definitely challenges with NYCHA um, getting apartments ready, available, whatever else it is. I don't know. You wanna, you, do you, do you want to talk about some of that? And can you guys define what NYCHA is for people who are living outside of New York and aren't familiar with the program? Public and housing. It's public, public housing. housing. Yes. Um, I, I try not to define NYCHA, especially not considering myself a New Yorker, right? I, I leave it to those who have lived here longer than I have. New York, um, New York. Okay, so I'm the only one here. Finally, <laughs> got a leg up on you too. Finally. So New York City Housing Authority is what NYCHA stands for. And it's yeah. public housing, where when you go in there, the rent goes according to your income. And um, back when I was growing up, you wanted to get into NYCHA housing because that's where you wanted to be, right? That, you know, they had all the services, you know, regular heat, regular, you know, hot water and all that other sort of stuff. Not all the time, but better than if you were living in a privately owned tenement building. But this was back, you know, in the 60s and 70s when, you know, slums in, you know, the South Bronx and and in all through New York City were heavy, you right. know. Um, but then as time went on, you know, um, you know, uh, NYCHA lost, you know, some of that luster and, um, you know, they started to get a bad rap, even though a whole bunch of good people came out of New York City Housing Authority, right? right. So, um, yeah, basically the rent goes according to your income. So they charge you 30% of your income. So if you make $1,000 a week, um, I'm sorry, if you make $1,000 a month, you're going to pay $300 a month in rent. And that's it at the end of the day, plus or minus. I'm saying 300, but you right. know, yeah. yeah. So, so a kid, so a, a, a child in care um, who's going to school, um, who doesn't really have any income, might have a little part-time job at Starbucks or something like that. He's going to pay the bare minimum. So they have a floor rent also, right? Like this is the least amount you could pay, which could be as much as 50 bucks a month, right? Um, but that's the way it works. And you're saying that, uh, so I, I can imagine that if I am a child who has, has been in care for X number of years, that it would be a great thing to have a place of my own. It sounds, it sounds great, right? But unfortunately, many of our young people are not ready. I mean, I don't know your story, but how many young people you know at, at 21 year old will, will make, will, can manage an apartment on their own, not counting the trauma they've been through, not having a, a strong support system, not having had the independent living skills to say, okay, I make X amount of dollars every month, here's my rent, here's my electricity, et cetera, how do I budget, right? And it's just so much is happening in, within, for a person who is in foster care. You're talking about the history of what led to placement. A lot of times that is not dealt with by the time they transition out. Most young people have tried therapy and it didn't work for them. Right, so they have unresolved um, things that they're going through, and then now you place them in in a nitro apartment. It's exciting at first because hey, I get to be my own the, my own person in my own place. I never had that, 
but then a lot of times some of them cannot sustain it and they end up homeless because they just were not taught the basic budgeting and home management skills needed. No, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was saying that they don't have that person they could just call and say, hey, what was that again? How do I do this again? And something in your mind, it's so simple. But if you never have that backup or that person to show you, it does become a challenge. And it's not so, counting the fact that a lot of them do have, some you do have ment- untreated mental illness, not all, some. And all that is happening and you're behind rent, you get kicked out or you get in trouble and then it's either prison or homelessness or both. Well, it's wild because like, even for kids who do have a support system and do have parents who love them and don't have mental illness, I've, I've said a thousand times. Dude, I'm struggling this. with this shit on my own. I was struggling Facts. with that shit on my own, yo. Facts. But, it, but, 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 but Fuck, why? Yo. Because the two, two things that determine how you were treated on this planet are not fucking taught in school. You've heard me say this a thousand times. I have sat across from people in a, in a, in a professional setting having this conversation. We do not teach our kids how to communicate and we do not teach our kids personal finance. It's a rare school that has that as a mandatory su- subject. It's an elective. It's a, okay, here, here you go. You expect you to get that from your parents, Maybe. though. You expect well, to get that from your parents. A lot of parents don't. A lot of parents don't know it, and a lot of parents don't have the ability to teach it. Good and money I, habits don't and, come from... And I got it from my parents, and I still struggled in my early 20s. Good, good money habits come from one of three places. It comes from having a parent or adult who teaches you good money habits. You know, it comes from having an, a mentor who came along at some point and says, hey kid, I see what you're doing over here. Uh, fucking stop it. Let's fix that. Or it comes from banging your head against the wall repeatedly and the pain teaching you a lesson. You know? And so that's for kids who have support systems and have parents who wish them well and 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 don't have the impediment of a learning disability or mental illness or whatever what have you now you have a kid who has these impediments and at 21 tossed out into the world like hey here's your own shit manage it and one of the interesting things is as, as you know when you were ta- first explaining this process the attorneys the attorneys who tell them hey kid you know, maybe you should stay in the system because when you when you age out of the system, for lack of a better term, these are the, the, the benefits you get. And I'm thinking to myself, like, why would an attorney advise their client in that way? And then and it triggered a thought, and I want to ask the question. Are they paid per case and for the duration of them having this kid on the books? Not that I'm aware of. I, I'm, I'm under the understanding that attorneys are salary-based, so it's but most of them get, you know, if you think case planners have a lot of cases, they get, if not 50 or plus, because they only, most of them see the child or you twice to three times in a year. So um, I don't think it has anything to do with, with their pay. Um, but again, I, I have not worked in the court, so I'm not sure. So it just may be that they're not fully thinking through the, the entire paradigm. Um, I, I think, again, it's just the, it's false advertising, yeah. right? It's, it, it sounds 
it sounds nice. Like, well, you get to be on your own. You get to have your own apartment and the agencies have must do this for you. It's ignorant. It's ignorant. Yeah, but you don't, you don't tell the young person all of that comes with living on your own and what that looks like, you know? And then, and so, and so in my mind, you know, and and maybe it's the, the, you know, distrustful, you know, cynic in me, but it's like, okay, so why aren't you telling these kids? They're not invested in it. They've got no investment in it. They got no zero investment in it. Like you said, they see this kid three times a year. There's no investment in it for them. So, so, so. so, And I don't want to knock their hustle. I want to know. I'm I'm curious. Just to add, though, again, in every, in every circle, there are good, better, worse, right? So. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. They're not all. I've met some um, attorneys for, for you that are amazing advocates, right? That when they partner with the planning agency and, you know, really talk to the young person, like messaging the same thing, you see the fruits of your labor. But yeah. when you're on yeah. op- opposing ends, it's just, okay, the child, yeah. the youth wants this and you're just going to go say yes without really advising your client, then you're really doing them a disservice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, 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 we've been at this for a little while, right? Um, right. And I just want to make sure that we cover uh, just one last thing uh, sure. before we go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, we hear, or you hear, or the perception is that, you know, there is a tragedy happening with youth that transition out of care that um, don't have these skills, that don't get housing, that, um, you know, don't get into schools, that, you know, they end up in some of um, some bad places or some bad situations. Is that true? For, for many, yes, that's absolutely true. For more than, than we need to have, absolutely. That one Okay, so one is more than we need to have, right? But would absolutely. you say 50% are adding up in bad situations? I'll say a little bit more than 50 from my experience. I, you know, just to add to that, I went to a training last week and only 3%, 3% of youth in foster care end up graduating with a bachelor's degree. But 80%, when you ask them if they want to go to college, 80% say, yes, I do. But only three end up graduating from college. And, and that's sad. That's just a very sad statistic where the national average is about 35 or so percent. And so just to, just to get you as to when you, when a young person has been to a traumatic experience or experiences, you know, that it's from, from birth or a very young age, they were abused, they were neglected, you know, perhaps because that parent or that caregiver was themselves abused and neglected. It was a cycle of poverty or someone just called the case out of spite and, you know, that parent's life unravels. But you add that with a system that is not fully equipped. Um, You add that with threats being made at all levels, right? You're talking about lack of funding for agencies who are competing for these dollars. You're talking about high demands, high caseloads. And you have a young person who just wants to be heard, who just need the attention. And you have a high staff turnover because staff are not being paid adequately. They're not being trained adequately. It's, it's a messed up system. 
you know, and that's why we need people who tr truly want to make this a career and who are in it for the better and not just a job. That's what I preach. Um, I know some are all about housing and that's important, but I really do think because like I said, foster care being the last resort, that safety net with a bunch of holes in it, if we make a push as a system to make this a career for people, not just someone who's like, I need a job and these agencies are hiring because of the turnover, I'm willing to stay for not just six months or a year, but a couple of years because I'm being taken care of as an employee. I'm valued where I work. I promise you, I think there will be a shift in the system. In fact, ACS has found this to be true. They did an analysis with agencies and for the cases where the same case planner and supervisor were on that case for two years or more, there were better outcomes for those children and youth. They went home or they reached permanency quicker than those cases where there was two, three, four, five people within a year in that so child's life. Door in the child's life. Exactly. Because yeah. it just so, becomes one more, one more piece of impermanence in that kid's life. Right. They're not opening up. Some things get lost in the sauce. Some things didn't get done. But where when a child has some stability with the agencies or work with the staff, it does make a difference. So that's why I went into, you know, training and staff development because I saw the value in when you properly value your staff, you train them, and you don't raise um, the caseload because you're in a bind it makes a difference. And remember I mentioned child success earlier, that is being threatened to be taken away, by the way. You know, a lot of agencies were excited about these extra dollars, but federally that may not be available in New York City. And so the commissioner has asked for agencies to keep the caseload at the child success, you know, the 10 to 12, but there's just, with the understanding that there will not, there may not be funding for that. And agencies, you know, you can't afford it. Um, there's a lot of disparity, but I hope those listening to this about, you know, it takes a village. It, it really does take a village. It takes every single staff member from the moment that young person walked through the door of the agency to tell them that you're happy to see them. Something as simple as that. And through the person they go home with at night, that foster parent to remind them, it's not just a hotel where this child sleeps and bathes and leave your, your, your home, you have to make them feel like part of the family. And I, I hope that those listening either want to be a foster parent for the right reason or know somebody who wants to be or want to be in this field to really truly do some work and be changing. So for the people who are listening, you know, and I, I know we're trying to close out here, what do you think are the ways they can help? as an average person saying, hey, there are kids out here who need support, who need love, who need resources, who need guidance, who need mentoring, how do they help? You can help a number of ways. You can become a foster parent if you have the space to, to do so and um, you're committed in the long haul and not just for the income. You can join a local mentoring organization because the mentoring the line, the waiting list for a child, any child, whether in care or not, for you to find a mentor 
is there's just not enough mentors. So I've worked with mentoring programs and so you can do that. You can literally just call your, um, a social service agency that you know has a foster care program and say, what do you need me to help you with? And each organization may have their own needs. And if you're, I always tell new social workers to be, you just graduated with your bachelor's in social work, your master's in social work, or any psychology or whatnot, and you really want to help people become, join the child welfare and make a difference as someone in that youth's life. It will be, will be hard. It'll be challenges, but it'll be worth it. Those connections with these children and youth are, are lasting and they're worth every single moment. I don't regret it. Even though I sort of left, um, I keep in contact with a number of our youth and it's one of the highlights of my career thus far. And I'm just starting. So I, I recommend anyone to at least do two to three years in child welfare and make a difference. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. So, um, you know, you already told us why you're mad. I don't think you need to tell <laughs> us why you're mad anymore, right? Um, uh, I just want to say, uh, if I was going to do a pat on the back, I want to pat you on the back. You and people like Guy Bryant and anybody else that's doing that work are really doing that work, you know? Um, and uh, I appreciate you because of my personal, I mean, you know, because of my personal history. I appreciate you. Um, is there, so you, you have a consulting business now, right? right. Um, if people wanted to reach out to you, um, how could they reach out to you? Um, via email is best or just on my website and we go from there. Why don't you give out your website and give out your email if you want to? Sure. My website is my name, A-N-A-I-S-A-N-A-I-S-E.com. You okay. could also find me on social media on Instagram. Okay. And your business is providing consulting services and training people who are doing this work. Am I correct? That and other work. So I work with nonprofit primarily, but I also work with universities and other um, organizations to do program implementation, um, staff development, and also I do an anti-racism training for certain organizations as well, where we talk about race, power, privilege, and building equity within the organization or the, the school campus. That's something I'm very passionate about as a woman of color. God bless. I'm sorry, what was the uh, Instagram? I don't think you caught the Instagram. Um, my Instagram is Anais, A-N-A-I-S, Anais, A-N-A-I-S-E. So it's a little play. Some people add the E, some don't. So I use both. Um, so it's Anais, Anais. Thank you so much for sharing and, and thank you for providing so much insight. I can't find the words to show my appreciation for you being on today and also thank for making for having the, me. the connection with Guy. Like, um, Definitely. Thank you for having me okay. and for being invested in this topic as well. Thank you very much. You have a good one. Okay. Bye-bye. So, Closing out. Did you want to do the close out or um, and a call to action? Yeah, man. So that was that was heavy. <laughs> that was some heavy shit right there, man. There there were moments where I'm covering my mouth and I'm like, yo, 
fucking people, man. Fucking people, like. Is there no bottom? Is there, is there literally no fucking basement? Nigga, no. <laughs> That's what's horrible, right? That's what's really horrible. Like, anytime you sit here and go, <laughs> this is what niggas could do. Niggas do something else. <laughs> right. <laughs> yo. And, people, and let me be yo, clear. Well, let me be clear. When I say niggas, I'm not talking I mean, about black people. people, man. people. I'm talking about people, period. Yo. yo. Like, people want this, yo. People want this for real. I'm like, like, I remember sitting in the office with Guy. And he's telling us the story of a young man who's been in his life for 40 fucking years. You know what I mean? And he's telling us the story of what that little, that, that, well, grown man now, but what that little boy went through, somebody boiling his head in a pot. And I'm like, yo, the fuck is wrong with people? And then you hear like, so, so not to belittle that, right? But I assume somebody had a mental illness when I hear that, right? But I don't know if I can blame, I don't know if I can blame taking money and taking a kid into your home and creating this false narrative that he, you are adopt. Like when you think adoption, you you're think thinking- like You are mine. Yeah. Like, like we, we, we you, you, you are part of my family. And it's just a fucking hustle. So, yo. Anyway, all right. So, um, I, I yo. People do a marriage all the time to fuck it. <laughs> like, I'm like, what? You know what I'm saying? No. Like, people do it for green cards. People do it for, like, yo, yo man. Like, I, wow. Like, and, and, and I'm saying to myself, well, why the fuck would they do that? Why not just keep them in force, you know? foster care why would you go through the and she said because there ain't nobody coming around to check the house no more right so, right who knows that like what average person knows this bullshit is going on somebody who somebody who does the homework like, somebody who does the homework yeah 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 like think, think about any hustle man the dudes who get over on the hustle are the ones who do the homework yeah so this is just another hustle and you and you can have multiple kids in the house so that's now multiple streams of income Listen, uh, single dad, why your man has voicemail. If you feel a certain way about something we said or something we didn't say, um, you can leave a voicemail message at 646-389-2852, 646-389-2852. We may need even play your uh, message on an episode. Um, we also have a YouTube channel now, but um, I got to be honest, I need to be more diligent about putting up content. Um, you know, um, I want to do it right. So I haven't been, you know, um, active at it, but the same name, single dad, why you mad? Oh, and, uh, by the way, right. Um, so there was a big spike in activity on the website. Um, when we aired, uh, the single mom's perspective with naughty poet, I'm not quite sure what it was or or who passed the word or whatever else it is, but there was a whole gang of people going to the website to find out what she had to say. Well, I told you she was non-ugly, so I'm pretty sure that has something to do with it. People... Okay, all right. Ain't, have, <laughs> ain't no pictures of her. Ain't no pictures of her up on the website. So I don't. I don't know. 
how you connecting the two, but all right, okay. Hey, listen, man, you know, stalkers are stalkers and fiends are fiends. If they look at they look. <laughs> Yo, ladies and gentlemen and consenting adults, thank you again for joining us for another episode of Single Dad, Why You Mad? We will see you in two weeks, but until then, make sure that you're following us on Instagram at Single Dad, Why You Mad? Spell all the way out. Visit our website at www.singledadwhyyoumad.com. Subscribe, comment, rate, and review us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and all the other podcast platforms. We appreciate the love. Make sure to tell a friend. And for those of you who follow us on IG, thank you as well. All right. Single Dad, why you mad? I'm a man.